Welcome to the Gospel Reverb Podcast. Gospel Reverb is an audio gathering for preachers, teachers, and Bible thrill seekers. Each month, our host, Anthony Mullins, will interview a new guest to gain insights and preaching nuggets mined from select passages of Scripture in that month's Revised Common Lectionary. The podcast's passion is to proclaim and boast in Jesus Christ, the one who reveals the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, on to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of Gospel Reverb. Gospel Reverb is a podcast devoted to bringing you insights from Scripture found in the Revised Common Lectionary and sharing commentary from a Christ-centered and Trinitarian view. I'm your host, Anthony Mullins, and it is my delight to welcome this month's guest, Dr. Walter Kim. Walter serves as the current president of the National Association of Evangelicals, a position he has held since January 2020. He also serves as teacher-in-residence at Trinitary Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, after ministering for 15 years at Boston's historic Park Street Church. He has spent nearly three decades preaching, writing, and engaging in collaborative leadership to connect the Bible to the significant intellectual, cultural, and social issues of the day. He serves on the boards of Christianity Today and World Relief, and on the Advisory Council of Gordon College. That's a lot. (laughs) Walter received his PhD from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, his MDiv from Regent College in Vancouver, and his BA from Northwestern University. And he is a licensed minister in the Conservative Congregational Christian Conference. You have a lot going on, Walter. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And for those in our listening audience who may not be familiar with you, your family, and your work, We'd love to know a little bit about your story. Would you mind sharing? Of course. Thank you, Anthony, for the privilege and joy to connect with you in this context. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that would be important to know uh, is the story that got me to this country. So um, I'm a son of a refugee and immigrants. My father uh, had escaped from communist China and literally uh, crossed a river in a barrel with his family hmm. uh, to get to South Korea, where he eventually met my mother. And they had um, gotten married and then moved to America in the mid-60s. And uh, at a time where um, you couldn't do simple things like Google, what does it mean to be an American? <laughs> you just kind of get over here. And uh, America was at a time where um, there had been not too long ago assassination of President Kennedy and the turmoils of the civil rights uh, movement uh, that was peaceful but met with violent opposition. And the country was just going through a lot. And it was really difficult for an immigrant to figure out, you know, what does it mean to be American when being an American itself was uh, contested? And that sense of being caught in a search for identity is in some ways a part of my journey to Jesus. So I was born in New York City, um, but we moved around a lot uh, when I was a, a kid. And so even a particular location um, was difficult for me to identify with. So I was, you know, as a family, we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be American, to hold on to our Korean heritage, um, what does it mean to be located in one place as we found ourselves for a variety of reasons moving. Um, So when I first heard about Jesus in my high school years, uh, there was a sense that I was coming home, 
there was mm. a deep sense in which the search for identity and place and location was finally met. And it was met in Christ, the one who transcends any particular location, any particular story, and yet in his presence um, is deeply personal and transformational. Um, and in many ways, uh, this kind of immigrant experience has helped me understand the nature of the Christian life, that we are uh, in the world, but not of the world, or the story of scripture that from the get-go, the Abraham story is a story of migration uh, to the promised land. And we have this image uh, in First Peter 2 of all of us, uh, brothers and sisters, that we are aliens and strangers in this world. Um, so there's this sense that has been always a part of my own personal journey, but it's also been a part of my faith journey of what does it mean to be faithful in the world, um, participate robustly in the redemption of the world, but at the same time to recognize that's not our ultimate home, that we have a home elsewhere. Uh, and um, that that's in some ways been extremely redemptive in my own sense uh, of personhood. You know, the call to ministry um, happened during my college years, and <clears throat> I ended up on staff with a crew at that time uh, and was in New England and uh, where I met my wife. Um, we eventually got married and decided to go study at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. And once again, there had an experience that really helped us bring together different parts of our lives. Um, it's very international experience being on the Pacific Rim. We had encountered Asian uh, Christianity uh, in a much more robust way than we had ever previously. Kind of international global context of Regent College in which uh, people from wide range of nations were represented, but also a very eclectic denominational mix um, uh, of Regent College. And um, it really was um, eye-opening. It was expanding of our sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and uh, the beautiful diversity that exists um, within the global church. Uh, it also helped me um, bring some discipleship to my mind. I think because my conversion was such a radical uh, kind of conversion into faith, um, I never really had a theology and discipleship of the mind. I had this kind of passionate conversion to Jesus. I wanted to be a missionary of some sort. I wanted to be a campus worker eventually or a pastor. Um, but it was during my Regent College years that I ha had this um, increasing awareness that God actually was concerned about discipling my mind, not just my mm -hmm. heart, engaging yeah. me not simply in uh, evangelism, though that is absolutely important, the proclamation of the gospel, but the implications of the gospel for all dimensions of life. Um, and that's where I decided maybe I should pursue this PhD. I have academic interests and inclinations. Maybe I should... Um, work within a university context, a secular university context, and try to be uh, a faithful witness to Jesus in that context. And so that's when I went off to pursue my degree at Harvard. And yet there was, once again, another twist. Um, uh, being involved with a church, Park Street Church, a 200-plus-year-old church that has been very much a part of American Christianity um, and evangelical Christianity, uh, it, 
attending there as a graduate student. And then eventually both my wife and I came on staff at Park Street Church and served as pastors there. Um, we discovered at Park Street uh, a, a vision of the local church that was um, in touch with the university, Boston being a university city, but deeply engaged with um, the issues that um, all cities face, uh, uh, urban complex uh, context. And so we were as likely to f f see in our pews uh, a world-class physicist uh, sitting right next to um, someone who was homeless, just coming off the Boston Common, looking for a warm place to sit for a few hours. Um, it was a beautiful place to uh, be both a congregant and eventually a pastor. Um, and it was this cohesion of the gospel and word and deed, uh, the life of the mind and kind of this active faith uh, that was trans transformational of the heart that really recaptured for us a sense of all the things that potentially could happen through a local church. Um, so the Lord had kind of used these various nudges in my life uh, to redirect us um, into local pastoral ministry. And Park Street was also where um, our two kids were born and raised, of two kids. And um, my wife and I have very much appreciated doing life together in ministry at Park Street. And then eventually here in Charlottesville, we moved um, in this position with the NAE, uh, arose in 2020. And have stepped into it with all the complexities that that represents. Yes. Yeah. I, as I listen to you talk, Walter, I can't help but think that, you know, God is preparing us always for what he's prepared us for. And your past has prepared you for what, what you're doing now. And I can only imagine you took on this role in January, 2020, and then, oh, this little thing called the pandemic hit. And I can only imagine <laughs> how that has added complexity to what God is calling you to do. But we are thankful for you. Listen, before we dive into the five Bible passages for this month, I, I would like to ask you a question. You know, your work with the NAE has you interacting, collaborating with many church denominations, Christian organizations, what would you say is the greatest challenge? And I know there are many, but what would be the greatest challenge facing the Church of Jesus Christ? And what gives you hope in the face of that challenge? Hmm. I think, um, as you said, Anthony, there are many challenges, and that's always been the case, um, that the Church has faced many challenges. And in many ways, the challenges... Um, are different uh, depending on where you are located in the world. Um, mm. So global Christianity and its various uh, aspects uh, will differ in terms of what persecuted church in East Asia or various um, parts of uh, the Middle East may be encountering is different than the church uh, seeking revitalization in Europe, Western Europe. And that itself is different from what the church is experiencing in Africa. Uh, and the explosive growth of uh, Christianity in Africa, in which theology is um, barely keeping up with the actual mm. growth that's actually you know happening, and so you know it really depends on where you're at. But I would say there are some similar themes of um, uh, that that I would say is very much true of the American context um, that is true in various ways, uh, regardless of where you are in the world, and that is um, holding together. Uh, the personal and public dimensions of faith. I think for many of us, our encounter with Jesus 
is um, profound and transformative on a personal level. And so we understand and have an imagination for dimensions of life in which uh, prayer is a part of discipleship, in which uh, ethics and the ways that we handle personal relationships or marriage relationships, family dynamics, that's an understood part of the Christian life. Um, But when it comes to the role of Christianity in civic engagement or society at large, um, that becomes much more complicated. And I think the church um, in its various locations um, struggles, often struggles with, I get the, the personal dimension, Jesus has changed my life personally, and so I need to be committed to transformation ethically as a person or sharing the gospel with my neighbor person to person. Um, but the public, institutional, societal, transformational impact of the gospel, or what the local church means, not simply as um, uh, an amalgamation of individual Christians who are helping each other individually walk better with Jesus, but what does it mean to be a corporate entity um, called to a community context, living within a national social context? That becomes so much more difficult, and it's in part why um, oftentimes in different parts of the country, uh, in America, and certainly throughout the world, um, faith always runs the risk, Christianity always runs the risk of being overly politicized, of becoming a part of power structure. European history represents this. Uh, Different challenges that exist in the global church represents this, and, and the tensions that we experience in American Uh, evangelicalism certainly represents this. And that all comes back to um, what I feel to be um, uh, a weakness that is often the case for followers of Jesus. We get the personal transformation, we've experienced it, uh, but we have a much harder time understanding how scripture would order our corporate life, our communal life, and our national life, uh, especially in a pluralistic society. Uh, here in America, we we think individualistically, don't we? Right. And um, I appreciate the fact that in a role like what you have, that we have to think beyond just the person and think systemically and corporately and what that looks like to be a good neighbor. It's like the lawyer in the parable, the Good Samaritan, you know, who's my neighbor? And Jesus turns it on its head. Well, are you being a neighbor? And mm. ultimately, I think that's what the collective church has to ask. Are we being a good neighbor? Well, it's that time. Let's uh, look at the five passages that we're going to unpack together. They are Luke chapter 17, 5 through 10, Keeping the Faith. That's on Proper 22 in Ordinary Time, which is on October the 2nd. Luke 17, 11 through 19, Lord have mercy. A lot of us have been saying that these days. Proper 23 on October the 9th. Luke 18, 1 through 8, Persistent Prayer on Proper 24, which is October the 16th. Luke 18, 9 through 14, justified on proper 25, October the 23rd. And finally, Luke 19, 1 through 10, at the table, which is proper 26, October the 30th. I'm going to read our first pericope, which is Luke 17, 5 through 10. This month, we're going to focus on the NASB. It is the revised common lectionary passage for proper 22 on October the 2nd in ordinary time. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. But the Lord said, if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. 
Now, which of you, having a slave plowing and tending sheep, will say to him after he comes in from the field, come immediately and recline at the table to eat? On the contrary, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. If you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, was our Lord Jesus's response to the apostles' request for more faith. So Walter, what, what is Jesus ultimately communicating, or was he communicating to them and revealing to us by the Holy Spirit? Mm. Yes, this is such a challenging passage because we all have experienced moments in our prayer life in which uh, we utter, uh, like um, the Father, Lord, I believe, uh, help my unbelief, in this sense in which um, we're asking God to even help us pray better. Um, But I'd I'd like to put this um, passage uh, in its actual broader context. So, when I hear that the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith, well, why are they making that request? I mean, what is the challenge that was just issued that would cause them to say, I don't have the faith for it? And if you look at the passage that precedes this, that gives it its context, it wasn't a passage of pr- about prayer. In other words, they weren't asking for more faith in order to be able to pray better so that they could take this mustard seed of faith and do miraculous things like tell a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. That There were two issues that were raised in uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17 that caused the apostles to say, whoa, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need more faith. So increase our faith. So um, one of the issues was, if you cause any of the little ones to stumble, then it is better for you to be cast into the sea than with a millstone tied around your neck. And then Jesus goes, I mean, that's that's already challenging enough. Mm-hmm. Um, then he goes on to say, if your brother or sister sins against you, uh, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times, uh, you f- forgive them if they come back seven times and ask for forgiveness. And so there are two things that, um, two challenges that Jesus raised up that forced them to say, "It just increase my faith because I can't do that. And one is um, our solidarity with those people in need, the vulnerable, um, that we would put nothing in their way to finding Jesus. And so the little ones, of course, the little ones causing uh, being caused to stumble probably literally also included little ones, children, so causing children not to have anything that would prevent them f- from coming to Jesus. I, I think we, we could affirm that. But I think in the context of Luke more broadly, Luke has such an incredible theme of hospitality for the vulnerable that appears again and again throughout the Gospel of Luke, this extraordinary concern Jesus has uh, for the outcast, the marginalized in society. 
it, it seems to me that one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he's saying if if we are causing any, whether it's the little ones who are um, young and vulnerable for that reason, or the marginalized in society who are vulnerable for other reasons, to cause any of them uh, not to come to Jesus, to stumble, to prevent them to come from coming to Jesus, brings judgment. And then the second thing is, I mean, the need to forgive others. Um, I, I think those two things present perpetual challenges to us, mm-hmm. don't they? I mean, the need to have such care for the those on the margins, the vulnerable, the weak, um, and not to put anything in their way from coming to Jesus, and the need to forgive others. I think we're very quick to... Um, uh, you know, to say to harbor bitterness, to harbor things, to keep score. No wonder the apostles say, "Increase our faith." I mean, mm-hmm. how can we do this? Yeah. And it's only then, as we turn to Jesus in the humble recognition that we can't do this kind of work of forgiveness or, or solidarity and concern, we're going to need Jesus to increase our faith. Um, because um, this imagery of the mulberry tree is is one in which, in the ancient world, um, the, the mulberry tree was a, a metaphor often because of the deep root systems of mulberry trees. Um, it was a, a representation of, of just that, something so deeply rooted and entrenched that it would be hard to move. And in this case, um, it seems to me what Jesus is getting at is saying, you know these challenges? You're right. You don't have the faith to be able to have that kind of love and compassion and the ability to forgive yes. in order to uproot those things that are so deeply rooted in your life. You're going to need to come to me. Mm. And even if you have just the smallest bit of, of dependence upon me, I, I will move towards you. Mm. Jesus has such a passion, doesn't he not? Yeah. Does he not for the least, the last and the lost? That's right. And, um, Lord, thank you for your gift of faith and forgive us when we haven't upheld these dear ones to you. Um, Help us with our unbelief. Walter, if you were preaching this pericope uh, to your congregation, what would be your focus from the text? And maybe we've already heard parts of it, but what would be your focus and why? Yeah, I, I would focus in on the forgiveness requires faith and faithfulness, the challenge to uproot what is deeply rooted in us. And um, I, I would follow up on this theme because I think all of us can safely say, you know, I, I'm not a prophet, but I'm going to make a prophecy right now. I think every single one of us has a broken relationship in our life hmm. where we need to be forgiven and to forgive. And we are all profoundly challenged and unable. We have reached a wall, an impasse. So much so that we just maybe have ignored the relationship or let it die, um, quietly walked away from it, or are railing against it in anger. Um, I would say if we were to preach and our congregations were to be freed with the forgiveness that comes in Christ and then the forgiveness that can come through Christ toward others, that this could be absolutely transformational to our family and community lives. Mm. Reconciliation is God's idea, Mm. and it's a good one, and he always acts first out Mm. of forgiveness and abundance 
of reconciliation. And it's why I was telling my wife recently how anytime I see reconciliation happen in a movie, for instance, between a father and a son, I'm just stirred deep in my soul because this is what it looks like in the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what a joy it is to participate in that, right? Mm. Well, let's move on to our next passage, which is Luke chapter 17, 11 through 19. It is a revised common lectionary passage for proper 23 on October the 9th. Walter, would you be willing to read that for us, please? Yes. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy, who stood at a distance, met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. But Jesus responded and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Walter, I've long believed that proximity um, tends to breed compassion. Jesus sees their affliction up close and personal, has mercy on them. What can we learn about proximity, or maybe said another way, uh, incarnational living, especially in light of this passage? Mm. Yeah, the the... The passage speaks to the presence of Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, he is yes. present to uh, the ten men who had leprosy, he's present to the Samaritan. There are so many things about proximity that <clears throat> in the original you know, audience's hearing would have struck them as extraordinary crossing of boundaries. I mean, Jesus was a boundary-busting person. <laughs> yes. And um, so it begins with, you know, he was on the way to Jerusalem. So it requires intentionality. He is on the way. And this theme of kind of this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is kind of setting his face toward Jerusalem. So whatever it means um, to be proximate to someone, it's going to mean an intentionality. It will require you to choose to move in a certain direction. And um, the fact that he was proximate to a place like Samaria that would permit Samaritan to come to him is also, I think, an issue of intentionality in putting yourself in places that were unexpected, that Jesus would be proximate to Samaria. And as um, you know, folks may know, that the, the relationship between the Samaritans uh, and the, the Jews were, was fraught with animosity, deep suspicion that was even theologically grounded Samaritans were viewed as heretics, uh, and the Samaritans returned the favor and viewed the Jews as uh, themselves being heretics. There were profound uh, conflicts between these communities that at times uh, came to physical blows and uh, battles. So there was a deep division that Jesus crossed. And then, of course, we, we see the division that even seemed to be uh, one sanctioned by the law. So they were at a distance, these men with leprosy. 
because they were told to be at a distance. The, the law required a distance um, in order for purity to be maintained. And, and so this sense uh, of boundary busting uh, must have captivated uh, the disciples, as they were following Jesus, for how many boundaries can this man cross mm. uh, in order to minister to people? Uh, and I think there is for us um, a profound challenge. We have to be intentional. We have to find the spaces and places in our lives that we would not normally go to because, well, respectable Christians wouldn't go there. And what does it look like to become proximate to that? And, and then when we do, there is kind of even working through um, the things that maybe our religion and Christian subculture has taught us, oh, you can't go there, you can't touch that, you can't be around that. And, and so that's itself being challenged challenge to our own instincts. Um, and, and so as we do these things, we keep in mind, however, the ultimate um, desire, and that is to glorify God and to bring, bring redemption in this world, this language of healing, this language of giving glory to God, thank, thanksgiving to God, speaks to the powerful presence of Jesus in this world and the redemptive power that heals not only body, but also soul. Um, and once again, the kind of reconciliation that happens, not, not just with the body being healed, but with a relationship being established. So the proximity that was not permitted between the Samaritan and holy spaces, as well as the lepers and holy spaces, now is being bridged. They are right at the feet of Jesus. Here is this Samaritan, once a leper, having all the bridges that Jesus crossed toward him. Now he has crossed them in response and come back in humble submission to God. And um, that, that's just such a beautiful picture, as well as a challenging picture yeah. of what it means to pursue an incarnational ministry. Yeah, and all we have to do is look at Jesus. Right? Yeah. You know, we sometimes act as if God cannot look upon sin, but Jesus dined with <laughs> sin, you know, mm -hmm. embedded in all of us as sinners, as we're going to see in a later passage. Yeah. He moves toward it to heal it in himself once and for all. Hallelujah, yeah. praise God. It, it's hard to believe, Walter, but nine out of the 10, 90% of the healed lepers didn't return to glorify the Son of God for their received healing. What is going on, and how might this be a cautionary tale for us today? Wow, yeah. You know, that sense uh, of gratitude um, is coupled with submission. There, I think there's something that strikes me about the Samaritan that is so challenging. It's not simply that he gave thanks, but that he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So it is gratitude with submission that is so profoundly challenging. Um, it's in his case, gratitude that probably led to the submission. I would like to reverse it for the 90% that, that didn't come back. It's probably the case that they were not submitted to God that led to their ingratitude. And um, the coupling of these two um, works in both directions, that the ability to say thank you, 
puts us in a place where submission is a sensible response. Such a good God. I thank him for this. I'm able to submit. But in in kind of this paradoxical um, way of life, our unwillingness to submit makes us ungrateful people because we can't give God thanks. We have to you know, say that we did this on our own, that we're kind of um, on our own fine. And I think something of that is probably going on. You know, we weren't there to interview the, the nine that didn't come back, mm-hmm. but the one that did come back and the way that the narrative describes the attitude of the one that came back couples the submission with the gratitude. And so my my hunch is that uh, part of the critique of the the you know nine that didn't come back is that they did not have a submission coupled with gratitude. Well, let's transition on to our next passage, which is Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. It is a revised common lectionary passage for proper 24, which is on October the 16th. And it reads, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not become discouraged, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect any person. Now there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect any person, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay long for them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, Walter, I've, I've often heard this text preached something like this. Be prayerfully tenacious like the persistent widow. And I think we both agree that, that it's good to be persistent in prayer, right? Mm. But what can happen is it gets communicated that we we somehow have to twist God's arm or maybe even condition him to be good to us. You know, if we get enough people praying, we can bum rush heaven so we can wear God down and he will relent and give us what we want. What is a Christ-centered exegesis of this passage? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. That's a really true observation that um, prayer is something that everyone will always feel guilty over, right? You, if you want to humble someone, you just ask them, you know, so how's your prayer life going? And that will <laughs> yes. inevitably produce the response, oh man, I should be praying more or better or differently. And I need to work on that. And and I throw myself into that very camp. Um, but I, I think, again, um, I would like to put this parable in context. Um, and that is uh, typically when a parable is told, it's told as an illustration, like every good preacher, there's a point and then you want to illustrate that point. Um, so for instance, when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He illustrates the point by just telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the question that arises in my mind when I read this parable, we hear it read, is, well, what's the issue that Jesus is trying to illustrate? Uh, Why did he tell this story? 
what's the point that he's trying to get across? Um, and again, if you go to the previous passage, there's this description of the coming kingdom of God that is not yet here, and that we all are living in this space of the already and not yet. We know that the kingdom of God has come, uh, but we want it to come in a certain way, in a certain package, and yes. they thought followers of Jesus at that time, the disciples thought it would come in a certain way and it would result in the the vindication of Israel by the annihilation of the Roman Empire and the restoration of the land. And and so they were all waiting for that expect with expectation for justice to be done on earth. But of course the justice would look a certain way um, and and come in a certain time. And I think it's so appropriate for us to ask the question, what is it that we are longing for that would make sense of this parable? What is it that we deeply desire in life? And is it the coming of the kingdom? Is it that justice would be done on earth? Because the nature of the widow's request is for justice. It's a longing for things in the world to be put right. And again, it's really important to see the context of the widow being the one asking this, like the leper in the previous uh, pericope that we had discussed. So all throughout the Old Testament, uh, you know, the the widow, the orphan, the stranger among us, uh, and the poor, there, there's these four categories of people that represent the marginalized in society, those in most desperate need of justice. So what's going on in this passage? I don't think it's primarily... Uh, intended to be a guilt trip for Christians to pray better, longer, harder. I think it's completely misguided to think in those terms um, for two reasons. One, um, here, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Even if there's injustice in this world, unjust judges that prevent uh, the widow from getting her due. Um, the point here is God is not like that. So whatever the parable is trying to say is trying to say that we have a generous God who loves to hear us. But simultaneously, like so much of what Scripture teaches us over and over again in its stories, is that it's profoundly realistic. On the one hand, we have this amazing picture of the generosity of God, that he is not like the unjust judge, that he is generous in how he wants to restore the world, that he thinks of the widow, the orphan, the alien among us, the poor, and he has them close to his heart. He cares deeply. On the one hand, we can say, how much more, if God does this for us sinners, now that we are right in Christ, that he would listen to our prayers, that he would treat us without condemnation, that he would enable us to say, Abba, Father. All of that is true. And yet it's also true that we are not fully there yet, that we are waiting for the ultimate vindication and restoration of new creation, new earth, new heavens, and the fulfillment of the kingdom. And in this world, there is a kind of waiting and yearning and longing uh, that we have. And I think the parable is trying to get us into that place, not of guilt, but of longing, longing for God to make things right, longing for the love of God to be fully manifest. And we know that that longing will always be left slightly unfulfilled in this world. 
it awaits the fullness of God's kingdom, uh, the consummation of God's redemption in this world. And so creation, we as God's people, we all groan with longing. So um, I, I find this uh, a beautiful invitation to long, to seek for justice, to have confidence in God's love, and to bring all those things in prayer. No, that's so good. I appreciate what you said about the longing while also seeking justice, because if we're not careful as we think about this inaugurated kingdom, the already not yet, we just kind of wait around for the not yet. So we're just waiting for Jesus to reappear. But there is an already aspect as yeah. if we can be active participants in the justice that God is bringing to his good earth. What else do you want us to see or know from this pericope? Yeah. That final question is haunting, isn't it? I mean, when the Son of Man comes, <laughs> yes. will he find faith on the earth? I think, you know, we, we hear this phrase, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes as a critique of Christianity or maybe certain forms of Christianity that are just concerned about one's eternal salvation as if it were something of an eternal fire insurance so that you don't go to hell. Um, you know, that there, there's a legitimate place for critique of a vision of Christian life that is narrow and only focused on getting people saved and in this narrow way. But that's a caricature. I, I actually think in order to be any earthly good, you actually have to be heavenly minded because um, earth's problems are too great that yes. they would overwhelm you and you will end up either being swamped by it or choosing to ignore it if you do not have a hope greater than earth. And to understand what the end point, what the finish line is supposed to look like actually gives you strength to untangle yourself from sin and to engage in the race that is set before us. So um, I think that final question um, really puts on its head the, the, the critique, you know, oh, you're so earthly, heavenly minded that you know earthly good by basically saying, in order to be earthly good, be heavenly minded. <laughs> Remember that there will be a day when the Son of Man will come back and all of this will be consummated. The question is, will he find faith on earth? That is haunting, <laughs> for sure. Let's move on to our next pericope, which is Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. It's the Revised Common Lectionary Passage for Proper 25, which is on October the 23rd. Walter, please read it for us. Now, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, crooks, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes towards heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Mm, what great Christ-like humility. 
You know, we know by Jesus's own words to the brothers on the road to Emmaus that all scripture points to him, to the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And I'm curious, Walter, what what does this particular text confess and teach us about God? Hmm. You know, I, I um, am struck by how this text showed up in my life one day in a very literal sense. Um, so, uh, you know, when I was pastoring at Park Street Church in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, we have the sanctuary that I would often go down to and uh, sit in the front row during the work week, and I would just try to weave in prayer uh, during my day as I was either preparing for Sunday or a particular meeting that evening. And uh, one day, uh, in in preparation for my time of prayer, I actually opened up this passage and, and read it uh, and realized, here I am sitting in the front of the sanctuary <laughs> uh, praying, and I'm wondering, Lord... Are you trying to tell me something here? Mm. <laughs> Am I this Pharisee yeah. uh, in my self-righteousness and perception of my place in ministry? And it was really a, a, a profoundly reflective moment for me as I stopped and asked a question. What confidence do I have? What justification do I bring? What resume do I try to show God to mm. impress him that he should listen to me? And um, I think, I hope I was able to say, you know, I don't think of myself in a fashion that would seek to put other people down, like as they're swindlers and crooks and adulterers. I didn't open up my prayer that way uh, when I was sitting in the sanctuary. But I do something similar, and that is I do present a resume to God to try to convince him that I am worth my his time that I actually should get an answer to this prayer, or that I really should have this kind of fruit in my ministry. And, and I think a lot of us do that. We often like try to prove to God he should listen to us. Um, and in that regard, maybe more subtle, maybe more sophisticated, maybe uh, more justifiable, at least to us, but in the end, not justifiable to God. We do this, and in the end, it makes light of the fact of the full justification that comes through Christ that enables us to say, no, it's not on your merits that you are able to pray this prayer. Uh, it's on Christ's merits that you can yes. pray this prayer. Um, and so one thing it reveals to me uh, is uh, it reveals to me how warped my view of God is that I would think I need to bring my resume to him in order to prove to him he should answer my prayers. And how poor that poorly that means I view God in his generosity, in his quickness to listen, in his attentiveness to my brokenness. And I think it it over time it sometimes gets worse. You know, when you're a new convert, you know that your sin that would cause you to pray the prayer uh, of the tax collector, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Like you just came to Christ, you know that. I found my prayers um less like this sinner the longer I became a Christian um, and walked with God because I had this sense, I should know better. I should be better. I should do better. And for those reasons, God should listen to my prayer. Um, in some ways, I think we never graduate from the tax collector. Right? We, we are always in a place of saying, Lord, have mercy. If I sin, 
I prove yet again my need for Jesus, and in that way, come again as a fresh convert to Christ. Mm. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, and I'm just paraphrasing, that the most important thing about a person is what they believe about God, because it affects everything. Uh, your your marriage, the way that you work vocationally, and of course, the way that we come to God. And if we see God, who is love, it's the very essence of who he is, and he loves us so dearly that nothing that we could do would change his love for us, then we can be real, <laughs> authentic with him. Be merciful to me, the sinner. But I grew up in a, a legalistic environment, and I was really good at self-righteousness. i got to be honest with you. Mm. Uh, but there seems to be a warning here. Um, anything else you want to flesh out about that and how we should take heed? Yeah, I, I, I think of this passage, and I'm reminded of a quotation from C.S. Lewis um, in some letters he had written about prayer. And he makes this comment, uh, the prayer preceding all prayers is, uh, may it be the real I who speaks, may it be the real thou that I speak to. Hmm. And I think that's so um, profound and apt to uh, what this passage is trying to get at. And that is, um, even before we enter into the depth of prayer, um, that we should pause and say, may it be the real I who speaks to you, a real sense and awareness of who I am. And may it be the case that I discover the real thou, the real you, Lord, who you really are. Um, And it's uh, in that way that prayer becomes not just a discipline of the Christian life, uh, but becomes the Christian life itself. It becomes the place in which we be the real us before the real God so that we could experience transformation. That was a fantastic Lewis quote that I had not heard. We'll we'll source that and put it in the show notes. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm going to ponder that for a while. Mm. Well, let's transition to our final pericope of the month. It's Luke chapter 19, 1 through 10. It's a revised common lectionary passage for proper 26th on October 30th. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable to do to the crowd because he was short in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him because he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when the people saw this, they all began to complain, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I am giving to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I am giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is such a beloved encounter um, between Jesus and Zacchaeus for many reasons. But what stands out to you? Yeah, it's funny that you use the word stand, what stands out, because that that was part of the story, right? That he was unable to see Jesus because he could not stand tall enough. 
And there's something about this story that makes it so, as you say, beloved. Um, you know, it shows up in flannel graph Sunday school lessons for little kids, as mm-hmm. well as the most probing and prophetic uh, sermons uh, and challenging uh, adults in a life of radical generosity and repentance. Um, so, you know, several things. The image of, of this imagery of sight um, strikes me of throughout scripture, we have this, you know, this notion of seeing things truly, seeing things as they really are. And I'm struck by that because of um, a science study that I had recently run across that um, differentiated uh, the perceptions of the world uh, between wealthy people and working class people, and that they had literally determined um, this, uh, the researchers, that wealthy people and working class people actually see the world differently. In other words, they're more attentive and responsive to different things. They could be looking at the same exact scenario uh, in on the street or in the center of a city, but actually pick out different features of that scenario. And one of the things that the study um, d- uh you know, concluded was um, wealthier people actually see empathy less. They perceive other people's pain less than working class people. So there is something very profound in this passage that the wealth of Zacchaeus, um, like perhaps the challenge that exists for all people who are privileged, enables you to look at the world in a certain way and ignore certain problems because they're not a part of your world. You don't pick it out. If this is a part of your daily existence, where the next meal is going to come from, you are able to look for and look at and see the world in a particular way. I think one of the deep challenges in this passage is um, this imagery of sight. One, wealth prevents us from seeing the world in its needs because we are so comfortable. And it really doesn't take a lot of wealth to make us comfortable. I mean, we in America might think we're middle class, but compared to the world standard, uh, that puts us, you know, on the 1% right. uh, of the world's wealth. Um, so one of the things that I would say is that the, the, what are the circumstances in your life? What are the conditions in your life? that prevent you from seeing well. And then there's something about Zacchaeus's personhood. He was short in stature. And then I would ask the question, what is it about our particular life? You know, uh, our personality, um, the quirks that we have, maybe even our bodily existence like Zacchaeus that prevents us from seeing Jesus. So, um, those two things, uh, I think, can be pretty discouraging uh, because, my goodness, you know, our conditions are our conditions, our circumstances, that's what we're in. How can we overcome this? Is it really the case that privilege prevents us from seeing the world with empathy? Um, and is it really the case that our personality quirks or biological you know, inclinations um, you know, prevent us from seeing Jesus? Well, that, that may be the case. Uh, yes, you, you know, we are fallen sinful creatures, and that prevents us from seeing God. 
But the beauty of the passage is that God could say, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And God can redeem redeem us out of our circumstances and, and, and grant us compassion and empathy when that's not natural to our circumstances. He can redeem us in our inherited sin and fallenness, or even in the fact that we might have some kind of biological predisposition toward um, sadness in life or anger. Like we're just predisposed. And yet God says that too can be redeemed. So I, there's just so much in this passage that resonates um, with our life circumstances, either personally or um, where we are in our station socioeconomically, um, and that we have the possibility of redemption for all of that. I chuckle, you know, who invited who? Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not sure Zacchaeus had his house in order, what it, what condition it was. But uh, I, I think in some ways that's a wink to the incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. He came to us. And, and one of the things, aspects of Jesus's transforming ministry that I think it's under talked about is his meal sharing or table fellowship. Now, in this particular passage, it doesn't reflect that, but in other tellings of this story in the the synoptics, we see they had a meal. Well, how does table fellowship fit into the incarnation? Uh, and and for us, how do our efforts to join the Spirit in incarnational living look like table fellowship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some profoundly human instinct that God has created us with, that we want to celebrate over a meal those things that are important to us. Yes. Right. So uh, virtually every culture that has some kind of marital ceremony includes a meal reception that follows, uh, whether it's a simple meal or an elaborate meal. Uh, in, in my case, you know, when Tony and I got married, Tony is a, a Taiwanese-American there, you know, we had this elaborate meal that was set up, and that was part of our culture yes. uh, that we had in commemorating our wedding and and if, the wedding feast. We have this imagery of in scripture of what's going to happen in the great uh, unveiling of Christ and his his bride in heaven, the church. It is this wedding feast. So um, the gift of communion this gift of a meal that was given to the church is, um, I think, a profound celebration of redemption, of a covenant. We celebrate the covenant of marriage with a wedding uh, feast. We celebrate the covenant of uh, salvation with a wedding feast. But there's another aspect of meals that I think um, in the ancient Near Eastern context would have been on people's minds. And that is meals not only celebrate um, great festive occasions, they solemnize um, the cessation of violence. So a lot of treaties uh, were made over a meal. And that was because there was a certain protocol. With the meal, you had to put your weapons aside at the entrance of the tent or wherever you end up having uh, the meal together. And by using your hands in the meal, 
uh, oftentimes in the Middle East, you actually would eat. And, and I actually sat around a table like this where there was this big pile as I was traveling in Jordan. We had this kind of traditional Palestinian um, Jordanian meal. And there were uh, a bunch of men surrounding this massive, it, it was like about five feet wide um, uh, plate of food, a pile of rice uh, with chicken and yogurt. And you were to use your right hand, grab uh, some food, and ball it up. Well, what does that mean? If you're using your right hand to eat food, you can't have a sword in it. Hmm. So um, there's this beautiful picture of celebration, of course. Um, but there's a beautiful picture of making peace, that the table fellow fellowship is a cessation of violence. It's a declaration that I give up this way of violence, and I'm stepping into this place where I make myself vulnerable. I leave my weapon aside. I use my hand to fill it with food and not a sword. And that puts me in a place of vulnerability. Uh, and if peace does not rule, then I'm in deep danger. And I think that's also a part of this beautiful picture of table fellowship that we say to God, I put aside my sword, my independence, I make myself vulnerable to you, and I yield myself in a place of trust and peacemaking. Uh, and to couple that with celebration and joy, uh, knowing that Jesus brought salvation to us is a bringing together of these various aspects of what a meal could mean in the ancient world. And it was also family time, right? You, know, yeah. you have family meals. Yeah. If, if meal sharing is peacemaking, may we eat more together for crying out loud. Amen. Amen and, to that. And it's, it's also a bit of a critique uh, the fact that many families have stopped eating together, it's no longer a core value of the family units. And that's another discussion for another day, but uh, how important it is to break bread together. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What a Christological tour de force mission statement. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah. Yeah, this this notion that we... We have Jesus coming to us, seeking us. Um, you know, the, the classic kind of come to Jesus altar call, where we sometimes physically, depending on your tradition, maybe it was a Billy Graham crusade, we like literally get up out of our seat and, uh, you know, with just as I am being sung in the background, we come to Jesus. And... Um, even the secular world has used that phrase. This is a come to Jesus moment. Mm. Uh, and yet what we have here is Jesus coming to us. Uh, he is the one that invited himself to Zacchaeus' home. Yes. He is the one that came to seek and save the lost. This Christological statement of God's initiative, God's grace, that um, even when we didn't have the wherewithal the sensibility to invite Jesus. He invites himself into our lives um, and that there is grace that is that great, that he would seek us out uh, when we're stuck and unable to seek him. And um, that too is a great challenge for how we think about church, right? If Jesus did not wait to be invited, but invited himself, if Jesus 
sought out, then that has some profound implications for how we live out our church life. Do we simply wait for people to come to us to attract them to our church, or do we figure out how to get church outside of our walls into the communities um, such that inviting ourselves into one another's, into you know, our neighbor's home would be such a sensible thing that our neighbor would respond by saying, oh yeah, of course, you know, I didn't think that, you know, but if, yeah, we'd love to have you over. I mean, that actually requires a certain kind of relationship uh, of trust that you could invite yourself over. And so um, I, I think that's for us, you know, what a missiological challenge. Do you have friendships with those who don't know Jesus to such an extent that it would not be weird for you to say, hey, I'm coming over with a plate of brownies. Let's let's hang for a bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Walter, I am very grateful for you for the calling that is upon your life, for the role that you have. We are in prayer for you. And I, my, my church tribe is Grace Communion International, and we are a member of the National Association of Evangelicals, and you've gotten to know us a bit. Um, I'm putting you on the spot a little here, but is there anything you would say to our listening audience um, that might be a blessing to, to our hearers? We are clearly in a time of deep contention. Uh, it seems like we're in an inflection moment, you know, one generation giving way to another generation, uh, cultural conflicts that um, are roiling not only life uh, in America, but internationally. Uh, you pick the country and there is a crisis uh, of some sort. And it, it seems like this is not simply some mild growing pains that you know people are encountering. This really does seem like a consequential, generationally defining moment. Yes. And um, my word of encouragement is, God knows. Mm. Um, you know, a recent Barna study came out um, that said up to forty-two percent of um, pastors are considering resigning. Um, because of how difficult life has been these last few years. And um, one of the things that we will need um, is this vision of longing for the kingdom that can sustain us through what seems to be prolonged injustice, this sense that even if we can't see Jesus, he sees us, this sense that We come to God in which we just bring our real selves before him. And so what my word of encouragement would be, um, yes, you are encountering challenges, but your labor is not in vain. Mm. And you will one day experience the full vindication of God himself. That's a good word. That's a fantastic way to end and praise him that is faithful and pursues us to the end. Thank you for being a guest of Gospel Reverb. If you like what you heard, give us a high rating and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Share this episode with a friend. It really does help us get the word out as we are just getting started. Join us next month for a new show and insights from the RCL. Until then, peace be with you.